Recorded live by two people who know the correct name of the game is Duck Duck Gray Duck, not Duck Duck Goose. It's Transformation Thursday, hosted by Amy Stevens and featuring Transformation Thursday Podcast Network General Counsel, Jamie Rodriguez. My name is Bill Satry, and my pronouns are he, him, coming to you literally live from one of the 10,000 plus lakes in Minnesota. And I am Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her, podcasting from America's North Coast. This week, my guest and co-host is Bill Satry. Bill is a native of Brainerd, Minnesota in 1986. Doesn't look a day over in 1987, to be honest with you. He started his... No problem, you're welcome. He started his radio career while still in high school. After high school, Bill went on to Bemidji State University. Yes, that is a real place where I met Bill and his now amazing wife, Shelly. Way back in, that was 1990, believe it or not, Bill and I worked together at Continuous Country, KB 101 FM, where I worked the overnight shifts and Bill worked the plum fill-in spots for the drive time host. After college, Bill worked in a variety of Minnesota radio markets before returning home to the Brainerd area. Currently, Bill is the program director and announcer for B93.3 FM. It was here on Transformation Thursday to discuss one of my little episode ideas that's been rattling around in my brain for the past couple of years, the transformation of country and local radio, because both of them now suck. Because a lot has changed in radio since 1986. Yes, it has. But before we discuss the transformation of radio, here's a reminder from Jamie Rodriguez that Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material. This is Jamie Rodriguez, the General Counsel of the Transformation Thursday Podcast Network, here to remind you that Transformation Thursday is copyrighted material. All rights reserved 2021. You can support Transformation Thursday by leaving the podcast a five-star rating and writing a short review on Apple Podcasts. It's free and helps get Transformation Thursday out to a larger audience. On Twitter and Instagram, follow us at TransThursPod. On Facebook, you can follow the podcast by searching for Transformation Thursday Podcast. Welcome back to Transformation Thursday. My name is Bill Satry. My pronouns are he, him. And my name is Amy Stevens, and my pronouns are she, her. You know, Bill, we 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 giggled there a little bit with uh, saying yeah. that local and country radio both suck now, but both have really changed since 1986 and when I got into business back in 1990-91. Mm, it has changed. It has changed a lot. Remember when we were in the... Uh, infancy of of our uh, broadcasting careers uh, it was single ownership radio and you had one owner and they had a maybe an am fm combo and that was it and everybody had to do all their business through that station they didn't have uh you know 16 stations well they could have 16 stations across the country but they were each one in a different community and each one singular to that community now well, that is really changed yeah and if i remember right you could only own eight am eight fms and had to be in different markets right it was correct it was, yeah so yeah yeah and so you could have an am fm combo in in eight different cities but you know there were limitations and those limitations were uh set forth by the fcc and that's the way it was now 
uh, deregulation came along. Of course, they changed that up and they, they started out, well, you could have a couple FMs. And um, that was just the beginning of, of allowing more and more uh, ownership by single groups. And therefore, the next step in that transition became when uh, large corporate entities um, became the norm, not only at the large market level, but then filtering down into the smaller and medium, well, medium markets for sure, and then into smaller radio as um, you know, we've seen fewer uh, kind of the demise, if you will, of the single local uh, entrepreneurial radio owner. So that has been part of that transition of why things have changed, you know, and things are always changing. That, that's kind of part of the, I mean, if it's not changing, it's dying. So you, you know, these things, it's always going to change. Every marketplace, every industry is going to go through changes and that, that's just natural. Um, but this has been an interesting one because it's, it's caused some things to, uh, it caused some things to happen that wasn't necessarily for the betterment of your community radio station. Well, um, let's, well, let's go back here real quick then. So, you know, if we're tuning into the radio in 1986 or mm -hmm. 1990, what are we hearing then that we're not hearing now? You know, one of the things you'd be hearing more of is um, you'd be hearing a live announcer on the radio. If you heard somebody on the radio, they, they were live. Now, uh, in the smaller markets, a lot of times they would use uh, satellites, fed stations and that was because they just didn't have the people in some of the smaller communities to to do the job so that would happen but in in all of your medium to larger market stations those were live local 24 7 like you were saying your, our first jobs in radio were overnight yeah that job doesn't exist so that job doesn't exist. Evenings on a lot of stations don't exist. That's uh, either voice tracked, which I'll get to, or is um, is you know imaged or or satellite fed, and that's even in the larger uh, medium sized markets. Uh, you know, two hundred to one hundred market level. Now, well, you know, population wise, what are we looking at when you say one hundred? You know, two hundred. So, yeah, so we're we're talking, uh, say eighty thousand uh, community to upwards of you know a hundred thousand. Where does Brainerd fall in? Oh, we're well below that. Well yeah. below that. Yeah, um, county wise, we're probably you have to take the whole county into a, a you know, about sixty thousand. Okay. Except in the summer when all the people from the cities come up, then it's over a hundred. <laughs> What cities are you referring to? That would be okay. All right. Yes, I have to remember this is not just a Minnesota thing. Uh, <laughs> Minneapolis and St. Paul, we refer to as the Twin Cities. And of course, their playground for folks in the cities would be geared uh, upwards to Bemidji. Yeah, you get a lot of folks that uh, have been spending a lot of time up north over the last year and a half. <laughs> yeah, I don't blame them. I know I have some 
family with a cottage outside of Alexandria. And I know they yep. spent a lot of time up there the last two summers. So I don't blame them. I'd get out of town too. Yeah. It's, it's been uh, busy uh, for sure. Uh, you, you think about um, the idea that if you could work from home, well, w- who says that home has to be here and it can't be at the Castle Lake? And why wouldn't you spend time there if you could? I mean, that's, I get it for sure. Well, yeah. And you have, I mean, you're literally on the shore of a lake right now. I'm going to stop yeah. your video real quick just because there's just a little bit of lake. So I'm going to try to make sure your yep. audio stays there. You're literally on a lake right now in a camper, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly. We're we're hanging out in the little town of Vergas. I'm looking at Long Lake right out the window here. And it's just it's loony days in Vergas this weekend. So we come up here and have music and have fun. And it's uh, one of the many getaways, which is funny since I live on a lake, just a different lake. So we just oh, I'm sick of this lake. So I'm going to go to this one for a while and see how I like it. Now, now during the winter, do you go ice fishing? I do. Um, now, how do you fry the ice <laughs> after you catch it? it? It melts usually by the time I get it in the house. It's amazing. Uh, Is that when you drown up, every winter? That's or? that's right. Every winter. Okay. We have. Who, who's, a, who's a Canadian comedian who had a riff on that? Was that Tom Green? No. Uh, yeah, there's a, there's a Canadian. Yeah, there's a Canadian. Yeah, that's a total ripped off joke. So I just want to make sure nobody accuses <laughs> me of credit. stealing jokes. Yeah. <laughs> We had, um, you know, ice fishing and, and we have one of our, one of our biggest broadcasts. And this is another one of those things that, that came out of radio, the ice fishing extravaganza broadcast. We broadcast an ice fishing tournament on Gull Lake in Brainerd with our Brainerd JCs. It brings in $150,000 into the community. It's for ice fishing. Yeah. And they use that money to help out Confidence Learning Center, which is a great uh, asset in the community here up up in northern Minnesota and a bunch of other great things in the Brainerd Lakes area, too. So, I mean, it's like ice fishing to raise money. It's a great tournament. And we broadcast the ice fishing tournament live on B93.3 every year. It's amazing. Now, my question is, is like, how does the play-by-play go for ice fishing? Is it kind of like, you know, like I'm imagining you and Shelly sitting there in the, in the ice shanty, right? Or, you know, on your five-gallon buckets out on the lake, you know, yep. you know, Bill, Bill just dropped a lure down there or a minnow on a bobber there and cracked open a 12 of... <laughs> It'd be Coors Light probably right now. It'd be Coors Light right now because the only thing he could get is three, two hands on. That's right. Only (laughs) Minnesota. Minnesota's the only state in the union with three, two beer. And so if you're going to drink water, you might as well drink Coors Light anyway. (laughs) And the three, two can. Yeah. There goes my Miller sponsorship. Sorry about that. (laughs) InBev, take me back. Yep. Um, We have... With with this fishing tournament, I've got angling pros that join us. And, you know, they're talking about, you know, if you're fishing for the big northern today, here's some things you want to take in mind. And we interview all of these different uh, 
anglers, people who sell things like the Vexlar that lets you have a camera that goes down into the water. And so you can see it's like <laughs> there's big money in fishing, Amy. I'm well, telling you, big money. But here's a here's a question since this is I mean, we literally have an audience around the world and not all of us grew up in Minnesota. Not right. all of us can be that fortunate. I mean, but how do you get and I know the answer to this, but how do you get through the ice? All right. So first, you have to understand that by the time we get to January, we have upwards of 17 inches of ice on any of our area lakes. 17 inches of ice. We take an auger, like uh, it's like a giant drill bit, and you drill that thing down in through the ice, all 17 inches, the water bubbles up, and then you clear out any ice that might be around it. And then you can drop a line and fish. Now, you can do it in a, in a ice shanty, a ice house, or you could just sit on your bucket out in the elements. Either way, just dress warm either way. Well, yeah, and 17 inches is just for our international listeners. It's over 43 centimeters of ice. That's a huge chunk of ice. It's a, and it's and it's that way until March. So you know, March and sometimes April will have have that ice out there. It is uh, people. I know it, it sounds crazy, but people drive their cars and other large equipment onto the lake, which. The first time, remember when we were going to college up at Bemidji, we had the guys from, uh, you know, Bang those years are, those years are kind of hazy in the old memory, but I vaguely <laughs> remember being there for a couple of years. We, we had the guys from Bangladesh who, uh, or Indonesia <laughs> that, that saw Bemidji winter for the first time. And they, <laughs> they were appalled that we, I remember we that make, we would make our poor live in those shanties out in that field <laughs> it's like no 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 those people have really nice trucks and they're fishing <laughs> and they have a seventy thousand dollar a year job over at the Arcticat plant in thief river <laughs> exactly yeah they're doing okay it'll be fine <laughs> well they were doing okay in the 90s now they're not yeah, 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 that's a different. We're not here for that story, though. That's another. That's a whole nother story. Now we have, uh, you know, with radio. I was telling you about how we do the um, <laughs> broadcast of the fishing tournament, but that's one of the things that has evolved. I think out of local radio, that we're back to doing some things that we got away from, and. When you're owned by a large corporation, as we know, it kind of went very corporate after the 90s. And kind of being generous. Yeah. Yeah. It got it got kind of nasty that way because it was like top down, filtered down. We're programming this. This is what you're playing. Oh, and by the way, we're having our announcers from someplace else on, on your community station. And that has been a very, uh, it's been a failure. I mean, it's been a failure for smaller market radio. It's been a not particularly um, well-received in, in media markets either. I mean, you have uh, you know, a big morning show in, in one market that maybe is uh, being beamed all across the country. That's still going on. We really have two different models happening here right now. 
because we're transforming back into some of the things that used to work with our, I, I got to say, it, you know, I'm going to, I have a plug for my company here a little bit, which is Hubbard radio. Okay. Uh, one of the largest family owned broadcasting companies in America. Um, it's still family owned. It's it, yes, it is corporate, but the family name is still on the business and the family is still involved in the daily um, goings on. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a lot like, you know, when we were working for Lou and Mary back oh, in Bemidji, right? Awesome. Awesome people. Right. And, and so we knew our owners, we had conversations with our owners. I've had, and it's like, we're back to that again with this group. And I'm really happy to, that, that we made that transformation from Lou and Mary to, to the Hubbards. And I feel like um, we were able to maintain that part of our company very well, that we still have that relationship, if you will. And they give us, they give us the, uh, of course, for them, Owning small market radio is not something that uh, that they had a lot of experience in because, you know, they're all in like Washington and New York and Seattle and Chicago. They're on, in all the big cities. And now we've say, got don't they own KSTP? Yes. In St. Paul. And yeah. so they have all, you know, KS95, one of the big one of the big powerhouse stations of, of the Twin Cities again. Minneapolis, St. Paul. Um, So for them to get Wadena, Bemidji, Alexandria, and Brainerd out of the sale, there was a learning curve. And there was a learning curve there for all of us. But uh, I think especially for them, uh, because, you know, it's like what works in Washington at WTOP is not necessarily what's going to work at KWAD in Wadena. You know, it's like you, you just nailed two opposite ends of the spectrum right there in radio so well let me can i can I ask a couple questions there as, as things jump in my head so wtop yeah. didn't they used to be owned by bonneville communication so did hubbard buy up a lot of that yeah. stuff yeah okay. there was a uh uh a sale that that got us into salt lake city and uh yeah, and wtop in washington which is a, a, a massive oh, it's a great facility. news station oh one of the very best in the country. And so you you go from WPOT, WTOP to uh, KWAD in Wadena, which is, you know, a small AM station in Wadena that um, that that is that is the ultimate opposite ends of the spectrum right there for sure. Hey, you're not going to believe this, but I'm looking at a text right now from my brother. Oh, yeah. It just popped up on my screen, the preview of it. It says, I get a lot of looks boarding a plane with my Minnesota duck, duck, gray duck shirt on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because that's how it's done. I was it caribou coffee that had those on their, their coffee sleeves for a while. Oh, I, you guys are all Starbucks. No, yeah, there's there. no, yeah, I, not, yeah, I'm a Starbucks employee. So I, yeah, I, there's <laughs> no, I don't even know where the car- nearest caribou is to you. I'd imagine Wisconsin. Yeah, you know, that's that, you know, if you look at a national map, Starbucks is the number one coffee chain across the country, except for Minnesota. Oh, okay. that makes sense. Because caribou. Yeah, no, I, uh, I like caribou coffee. Whenever I'm in back home, I, you know, yeah. I, 
Yeah, I'll go to Caribou. I have no problem with it. They put Duck Duck Grey Duck on their uh, on their coffee sleeves too. It was pretty. If, if you ever see one of those again, grab a few for me, please. Oh, I will. I will. All right, I appreciate that. Thanks. So, <laughs> so W. So, so well, you know, as being an ex Mormon, so it's always good. So, is Bonneville out of radio and TV, or you know, we're, now we're just going off on these tangents for no particular yeah. reason. But um, I really don't know what became of them per se. Uh, Fair enough. They sold off um a no oh, man i i think they sold off all their majors for sure well, so i think mormon they must class. be out of radio at least to get the mormon church out of media is a good thing so i you're not going to get a complaint from me i, I wouldn't disagree yeah <laughs> well the, the, i yeah back back around the turn of the millennium here i actually had a friend his father was the ceo for bonneville communications mm-hmm. um back in the day i'm not going to mention names yeah but yeah so it's it's interesting though but you know that corporate feel and you were talking about hubbard you know still being family still being corporate getting into small market radio and you're seeing this evolution yeah two different business models that big market you know satellite beam everything in make it all automated you've but got you that yeah, yep, you've got that iHeartMedia and you've yeah. got the Cumulus, Cumulus. model. Yep. And and um, their model of doing radio is just shelling the small market stations, uh, getting rid of staff, uh, eliminating positions and running as lean as possible and just homogenizing everything to a point where, you know, you if you're listening to a station in, uh, let's say, uh, Duluth, it sounds just like the station in St. Cloud or Rochester. Rochester, Minnesota. New York, not Minnesota. Yeah, right. Well, actually, yeah, it probably would sound just like Rochester, New York or Rochester, Minnesota. They're going to sound the same. Well, it's not good for the industry. Well, and you know, it's one of the things that I liked about local radio is like you had personalities, you had callers, you had... Yeah requests and you know and i listen to bbc radio too and granted it's the bbc but it's Mm -hmm. i kind of geek out on it because it's that type of radio there there are personalities there there are listeners that are calling in there's off the wall music and sounders and just there's there's personality to it yeah And and so i have a question here though for you on the business side of it because we know money speaks in this in any business yeah but as you're seeing you know, that return to your local roots in your market there in Brainerd, you know, are you seeing that reconnection to the community, to the business community and the increase in ad dollars coming back into your market, into your stations? It is uh, absolutely true. And, and nothing could have uh, highlighted it better than what happened during the pandemic as advertisers were, were fleeing because they were shutting down during the pandemic, uh, advertising cancellations were happening at an alarming rate. The first to recover were the small market community stations. We were the first to get business back on the books because of our connection with our community and the fact that during the pandemic, for example, we were doing uh, call out type situation. So, you know, so-and-so is in need of, you know, of, of whatever, uh, we were doing community-based things with our businesses. 
getting business uh, uh, gift cards and doing that is like buying gift cards, have, having people start a gift card thing where they were buying gift cards all the time, even though that some of these places weren't able to uh, open their doors. That was something we were able to do at a local level and, and have good faith. And that turned out to be a great program to get those advertisers back on the air once they were able. And so we were able to put money on the books sooner because we were doing local programmed, uh, local initiatives, local sales initiatives, promotions with, with our businesses. Um, in the large cities, it took longer because they did not have that same connection with their, uh, with their business community. So when it came down to it, I think that was a really good example of, of how it worked. And I think it was something that uh, t- was noticed, definitely noticed uh, in, in the Twin Cities when, when they were looking at, okay, oh, see, markets down here are starting to, to blossom again. Well, no, that makes sense. And, you know, there's groups online, you know, we have one here and we did, uh, Jamie and I produced a comedy and storytelling show a couple of weeks ago here in Rochester, you know, for the LGBTQ mutual aid group that's done on Facebook. So you were just doing that, but at a, you know, wider community level using radio as your vehicle then. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, we're, we're even outside of radio now, we're going into more digital media, um, you know, it's, it's inevitable that we as a media company diversify. Uh, so we're doing more things with podcasts, more things with video, more things with uh, just digital advertising, uh, social media, things like that. They want us radio people to be content providers above and beyond just our show, which is something that is part of this this transformation into the future of radio is that what is the future of radio? I know some people think radio is dead. I mean, they really think that we've run our course. I just think that we're going to transform into our next uh, being and hopefully leading the way will be good local community-based radio. And the good local community-based radio is what's going to drive the train as this, uh, as this next transformation occurs. Hey, Bill, hold on a second. I'm going to hit mute here real quick. My daughter came home from school for a visit. Yeah, so I'm just going to give her a hug and a kiss. Do that. Thank you. Absolutely do that. All right, she's already gone. (laughs) Hey, well, you mentioned podcasts in there, Bill. um, And, you know, you mentioned, you know, before we started recording, you also mentioned that Hubbard's trying to get more podcasts and start a podcast network. I know a little podcast network with two podcasts, two amazing hosts. um, You know, you have your lawyers talk to my lawyers. Uh, Yes. I hear you have one on uh, retainer (laughs) here on the show, even. Yeah. More than on retainer. I mean, she's our general counsel. I mean, she's, she's on salary. That's how that's, you know, that's impressive. Yeah. It's Uh, a salary of zero. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's called pro bono, but I think it is, but you know, what's really funny is it's like, you know, if, if you look around in, in radio, we've needed lawyers for years for some of the, the crap that we've pulled. I mean, I can't, I can't believe that we don't have one in the, in the studio all the time going, no, you really can't do that. <laughs> yeah. You, you can't do that. You can't say that. No, you, you know, 
yeah you know it's like how much can you get away with just because you're a radio you know we you talk about advertising in there mm-hmm. and you know and that's kind of the thing where oh radio is dead nah it's not what i'm seeing is successful radio groups stations whatever it is mm-hmm. they're using still what is it over 95 percent of the population is reached by radio each week yeah it's it's a huge number and even if people are uh using their um spotify pandora whatever there's some point during the day where they're of even if it's just going into the gas station to get uh you know pop and whatever the radio is on <laughs> you know what i mean what's pop pop uh soda for the rest of the world <laughs> oh you knew i was gonna slip that one in there somewhere oh my gosh i love it no it's just, it's, just, it's like i even though i grew up in minnesota i just don't say pop anymore i just <laughs> once i moved to wisconsin that's one of the little differences between minnesota and wisconsin is in east central wisconsin where oshkosh is where i ended oh, up yeah. getting my bachelor's from at soda so no, but you're you're right. I mean, radio is still this huge, even though it's fragmented, it's still yeah. reaching a 95% of the population. So if you can have the, you know, and it's about content. So you can yes. have that radio advertising campaign. You can drive them to a website. You can drive them to video content. You can have contests. You can, you know, whatever it is, yeah. it becomes more of a multimedia type of sales Boy. environment versus just, Hey, let's put the, let's put a thirty second spot on the radio and hope somebody walks in your door. That's right. that's not the solution anymore. Nope, and and it's part of the it's part of the full package though. And it's like we have the thirty second ad, of course, uh, 60, 30s, You know, the world in radio yeah. used to live around sixties and thirties, and uh, so now you've got the sixties and thirties, but we're augmenting those with uh, our like digital twenty sixty out of. Uh, Cincinnati they 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 do all the the major digital for for our group so there's another avenue that we're able to help uh, businesses get exposure and that exposure is is very targeted where radio is a mass communication where we're the the shotgun approach right well with social and uh, digital you can pinpoint those to people with specific, wants needs activities and that is a uh, something in, in radio maybe wasn't as uh, good at we were very good at the uh, try to get as many people to listen to this station and that's that's there's your audience so it's a more uh, particular uh, audience so I, I you know we've been chatting for just over a half hour so couple more questions here and then we'll turn the tables where you get the, you know, we joked before we started that I'm interviewing you, but you know, you also get a couple, (laughs) couple questions back at me here in a little bit, but you know, when you look back at, you know, those, you know, eighties and nineties in radio and that transformation, you know, look what let's reminisce. So what are some of the highlights of your career bill? I mean, because you, you've met some pretty impressive acts and folks along the way. So, you know, what's, what's, What's Bill Satry's highlight reel of his career? Oh, wow. Um, you know, I, I go way back to when we were working together in Bemidji. Of course, those were those were the days you cut your teeth on the business. You learned, learned, learned. We had some great teachers there. We had, uh, you know, one of the highlights for me was really riding to a remote 
uh, which is a live broadcast outside the station at uh, Northern Lights Casino, Lou Baron drove me to the remote and the whole way I, I was like, it class was on and learned a ton I, that I, day. I remember you telling me about that car ride right after it happened. Like, wasn't that like where you got those war stories from New York city oh, in this time yes. in, in New York? It was the war stories. It was the, you know, when we had this day, it's like the whole thing with the com the, how uh, the New York Mets and double day and how they uh, worked for double day and they sold off so he could buy a baseball, not Lou, but his, the owners, the double day family wanted to buy the baseball team. And so they sold off all these radio stations and the things that went on around that and, and, and how he decided that he was going to take that and develop radio stations in Northern Minnesota. Cause he loved it there. And, and then the whole idea of, of bringing that, that structure of good formatic radio to the small town and still keeping it local because we were all employed and we were all working overnights and all of that stuff. And, uh, that was, you know, live and local was important, uh, back then. And it will become important again in the future of a uh, good broadcast. You know what, you know what I miss about those days since we're going down there and, you know, we brought up a name earlier and hopefully he doesn't get mad, but you know, just sitting around and talking radio, talking about formats and talking about, <laughs> you know, I just remember sitting around with Kevin Jackson in those days from KB yeah. 101 and K and KBUN up there in Bemidji, you know, he's and still just, doing it. And he is still doing a great guy. Tell him I say hi, if he knows who the heck I am by this point in my life. Um, Cause I know you still talk to him every once in a while because you're still in the, you're still, you're both in the Hubbard family now. Yeah. Yep. But just sitting around and I, and I'm going to take credit for this, but do you remember what KBUN's format was when we started there with that big uh, auto? Oh God. It was uh golden oldies and twins baseball. Yep. It sure was. And I remember going in one day to Kevin's office, we were talking and I'm like, you know what? It needs to be sports. Guess what it is now. Sports. <laughs> It is sports. And it was such a big uh, uh, success that they not only have one frequency doing it, now they've got two frequencies doing it under the banner of KBUN. So you were right. You get, you get credit for that one. I, I'm sure Kevin sees it a whole different way. but <laughs> Fair enough. I, but... do, I do remember that conversation. <laughs> well, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, talk about, you know, Going from that experience, then working in the Twin Cities, I worked at at 104 at uh, it was KJJO FM 104.1, and that station was modern rock. When I got there, it was country in the middle of my stay there, and it became smooth jazz as I exited there. What? And that was two years. How? What is it now? It's Jack FM. They don't know Jack, but they play it anyway. Gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, during the, you know, talk about that was a horrible experience because again, that was, that was going from the uh, owners that I knew and got to ride in the car with and visited with, and, and they were like, you know, surrogate parents in a sense to being owned by a newspaper company in upstate New York that 
probably was better at newspaper than they were at radio. I would hope. Nobody's good at newspaper anymore. (laughs) Even, even the best newspapers would have to agree with you there. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, they kind of came in and they swept everybody out and changed the changed up everything a year and a half later, did it again. Like, oh, this is at that point. I was like, if I never go back to Twin Cities radio, I'd be fine with that because that to me was the worst of it. Ended up in Duluth. That's what I would call medium market. That would be, you know, market 200 something, uh, 190, whatever it is. Yep. Community of uh, around 100,000 people. Um. And if I say, if I ever go back to Minnesota, that's the area I'd like to go. Oh, absolutely. It is. It's like a coastal city in the middle of America. Yeah. It's, it's like uh, as close as you're ever going to get to a West coast city, right in the middle of the Midwest. Well, the interesting thing about it is I follow a couple of groups that have pictures of the North shore of Lake Superior in Mm -hmm. Facebook and the shots you get from Canal Park, from the hill there in Duluth, and yeah. just—I mean, it's—it's it's a beautiful area. And people, and I've—I've I've been in forty-nine of fifty states. I have not been to Alaska. That's the last one I need to get to. But if people, and I've had people ask me, it's like, where's the most beautiful spot in the country? And I'm like, that one of my favorites. And people are surprised when I say this, but I say the North Shore of Lake Superior, in between Duluth and the Canadian border, and people yeah. are shocked. I'm like, There's, no, you, it is that beautiful there. Split Rock Lighthouse is to me the epitome of the most beautiful place in Northern Minnesota. That is it. Split Rock Lighthouse, um, Gooseberry Falls, which are dry as a bone right now because of the drought. But uh, when that thing is running, that in the spring is a beautiful, gorgeous, amazing, almost spiritual place to be. It's just a, it's it's one of a kind. Yeah. And you know, I spent six years up there. Uh, it was a great six years, but it was it had become well. Again, we were full in corporate radio there, doing more with less, driving uh, the you know uh, people down to doing three shifts a day on three different stations. So I did a morning show. I did an evening show and I did uh, an overnight show on an old. So I did a morning show on a, on a AC adult contemporary station. I did a country shift in the evening on, on my station there. And then I did the overnights on, uh, on the oldie station every day. Well, and didn't you, well, and were those voice tracked or were those live? So that you would mentioned be voice. voice tra- tra- yeah. yeah. So okay. you're voice tracking all this different stuff. So, I mean, even though there's a voice there, it's not yeah. really there. And that was, you know, at least they're using local voices. I'll give them that. But you're just doing the voice parts in between the songs. It gets pre-recorded. You listen to it as though you were doing a live shift. It, it, it appears it feels like when you're doing it like a live shift, you're just doing it in uh, rapid succession. So you don't get the three minutes and 40 seconds between songs to go. All right. What am I going to do next? You know, yeah. you have you're going from one to the next to the next to the next. And so, you know, you could call it a time shift if you would. But um, 
it still is old. That's, that's a lot of radio for one person to do in a day. Yeah. And I know a ton of people right now in corporate situations that are doing more than that. They're doing Ooh. multiple stations on in multiple markets outside of the market that they're in. And mm, that, that is a reality in radio now. Oh gosh, we're, I was listening to, I just, I don't listen to a lot of local radio here, but I was listening to one of the big stations here, commercial. I, I was probably the country station because I was in the car with my daughter and I heard the announcer mispronounce something here that was, you know, it was just one of those little things. It was like, instead yep. of saying Avon, she said Avon, which is the right way to say it for 99.9% of the population. But <laughs> right. if you're here in Rochester, New York, you're saying Avon and she said Avon. And I'm like, oh, this is voice track. You are so not from here, are you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, and we've got a ton of those in Minnesota. It's like you throw uh, you throw some of the the names like Niswa in there. And, and I've I've heard people struggle with that. Um, Lake Nabagaman. Uh, which doesn't is spelled, you know, however, um, just there's so many of those. Was it Winnebagosh up there too? Winnebagosh. Oh yeah. Lake Winnie. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget Winnebagosh. That's a, that's a staple of, uh, of Bemidji radio. You better know that one. If you're in Bemidji or Grand Rapids. Yeah. But well, yeah, it's, and, yeah. And that's the totally, thing. I mean, and yeah, that's you, the nice thing about living here in New York is I already had, you know, those native pronunciations down. So <laughs> It was just a transition to, to figure out which one was the right one. Yeah, and we've got a ton of those. And every time that you get somebody new on the air, you have to, you have to coach them on that. So we've got uh, a little coaching that has to be done every time you get a new person on the radio, but that's, that's part of the uh, making local radio better. Yeah. Well, so, okay. So we talked about the corporate side, you know, talking about, you know, sitting around with Kevin Jackson and, you know, the folks <laughs> there at KB 101 back in the day. And we'd be remiss if we didn't miss mention John Klein too. So yeah. Johnny rock, Johnny rock from our Bemidji state days. And so I wonder what he's up to I, uh, last time he was, he was, he was selling some Traeger grills for a while. I wanted to get a Traeger grill from him for a while, but I don't think he's doing that anymore. I got to yeah. catch up with him. Well, when but, this episode posts, I'll make sure we tag them and say, hey, you got to make sure you take a listen to this one. You got to mention, you got to mention, buddy. Yep, yeah, exactly. absolutely. But on the flip side of that, of fishing. I know he does fishing, so I know he's yep. got that going. Well, on the flip side of this, so we talk about the business side, but talk about some of the big acts you've met. And so, and I know you can't say the ones that were jerks, but you know, <laughs> the ones that were, you know, really cool people to hang around, you know, and if you want to throw in a jerk, go ahead. Oh, you know, the, the thing with that is it's really funny is because I've had some really interesting, let's call it interesting run-ins with a couple of big name artists before they were really big. I'm going to start right out with Trace Adkins. Yeah. When he was starting out in the business, mid nineties, mid to late nineties in Duluth, he did a radio tour, came along to uh, the morning show was, you know, he and his record rep came in. Uh, here's a new guy. He's got a song. Every light in the house is on. Maybe you've heard it. Oh yeah. We just started playing it. It's, it's, you know, it's getting traction, all of that stuff. And you know, this guy's, he's, he's so tall. He's super tall. And then he throws the cowboy hat on top of it, had to duck when he walks through doors. And it was one of those mornings when I'm running late and I've got my son, Alex in a car seat. And I was, I had to get all my gear for the remote broadcast. And it's the station's on my way. So I'm like, all right, I'll put the kid 
in and I'll get the stuff and then we'll go, we'll do, we'll drop off at daycare and then I'll go on to the, to the gig. Well, there's all this buzz at the station. When I get there, I'm like, who's the tall guy with a cowboy hat? I don't know. It was like, uh, Pat, I believe goes, oh, it's Trace Adkins. He's, he's, he's a, one of the new artists that we're playing. Oh, cool. And so this big tall man with a very deep voice comes and goes, Oh, look, a baby. Can I hold him? <laughs> like, yes, sir. <laughs> so he picks up Alex, my now 26 year old son. Uh, he was, you know, oh, I want to recreate that photo. I do too. That's what I want to, I would, and we didn't, that's the thing is back then we didn't have phones with cameras on them. So that is one of those things that I don't have any visual record of, but I have the stories of, of everybody who was in the radio station that day to, to corroborate my story. <laughs> but so he picks up the baby and is doing the interview on the radio and, uh, I load the van. I take the kid. It's like, huh? Oh, all right. And sure enough, you know, Trace Adkins turns out to be not only a big star in country radio, but on television and everything else. Um, but that was in his, in his beginning days when it all started. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And um, that's, and that's the kind of stuff that was so cool. I remember, you know, for the minute and a half, I worked in the Phoenix market before I got out of radio, I got to meet Kenny Chesney. Yeah. And, you but, know, talk about it, talk about opposites, you know, yeah. <laughs> Kenny's, Kenny's a short little guy, and, but great <laughs> singer, you know, at least at the time that I met him in those few minutes, super nice guy. And, but that's just the stuff that's not happening in local radio right now, it, you know, yeah. and because what they're going to do is they're going to put Trace, they're going to put Kenny on a, on a satellite line and beam that into 50 markets at one time. Yeah. Yeah. So they don't have to do the tour anymore because it wasn't cost effective, I'm sure, uh, in this current model. But, you know, um, when they do come to do festivals or whatever in, in your area, it's it's nice to maybe get a chance to, to meet some of them and get an opportunity to interview. Them. So we've done that of uh, sons of the desert when they were a thing in the nineties, loved them. They were great. They hey, were no, no, no. Super. highway one Oh one. Yeah. Another, Hey, the, the drummer from highway one Oh one. Yeah. He, remember he's, he's Winona Judd's husband. Well, and you also remember he also didn't like, because when they played it in Bemidji by the lake there, they put his drum set in the back. Uh, he doesn't, you don't, nobody you don't, puts baby in the corner. That's right. And so he had, so they had to totally rearrange that stage for them at the last minute, because remember bubbles, Karen Alexander yep. recognized that and called them out and made them move the stage around. Yeah. Because that is, it's like, don't you know who these, that's not how they arrange their stage. And to this day, when, when he's uh, performing with Winona, he's up front yeah. and we just saw them uh, last weekend. Uh, at a little bar in Cushing, Minnesota, out in a parking lot, they played a show to a packed house. Oh it my gosh. Oh, so cool. Yeah. And it was fantastic. Live music makes the world go around. I believe that in my soul. Yeah. I love and, live music. Well, and that's the thing is like most of these people that we meet that you hear on the radio, the stars, at least in country radio. I mean, I was fortunate enough to meet um, Reba McIntyre in Rockford, Illinois. Yeah. The publicist and the company, you know, that ran, you know, ran her stuff was a total 
you know. Oh, the publicists well, always are. That's oh yeah, they always are. Oh yeah, that's your job. They're 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 definitely you know they're 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 mama bears and they're doing their protection role. Yeah. But I'll tell you, Reba McIntyre is a sweetheart, and I would say most of the people you know I've been fortunate enough to meet, and I would say for you, same thing. Yeah, I have very few uh, stinker stories, really. Uh, I I could probably throw one or two um, that were. I was disappointed and it maybe wasn't anything to do with them. It was more out of the the sense of we're not doing meet and greets. We're not doing this stuff. And I'm like, Oh, well, you know, you know, it it just seemed kind of, Hmm. Well, that was a let down, you know, Uh, we were going to do this or we were going to do that with, uh, you know, Toby Keith was here in uh, that was a few years ago. And we had a deal set up there where, and it wasn't any fault of his. I mean, it was a case of they had overstayed part of the one of their other commitments and they had to skip something to get them on stage on time. I get it. It happens. Yep. But it was disappointing. It wasn't his yeah. fault. No. And I, I would, you know, and I'd be remiss too. One of my favorites was Joe Diffie. And it was so sad oh. when I heard that he passed away last March at the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah, uh, met Joe Diffie at a another little festival. We had uh, Joe Diffie. We had Mark Chestnut. We had, um, oh my goodness, the Bellamy Brothers at this festival. Uh, and meeting Joe Diffie was one of the highlights. Little festival east of Brainerd uh, called Iconic Fest. If you ever, if you want to yeah. see some iconic, we had Terry Clark there. Okay, talk yeah. about iconic. And this is going to be so, my last question. And I have yeah. my opinion on this, but you're going to answer it first. Most underrated country singer of the 90s. Mm, underrated yep. of the 90s. So if you go back to the KB 101 Red Reel. Yeah. And you can follow that playlist on Spotify and just look for me, Amy Stevens. I love um, that. But- that is a great playlist, by the way. You did a very good job there. I had some up good some of my favorites. Yeah, I had some great input from you and John Klein. So I appreciate wow. that. Thank you. I remember the Forrester sisters. The, oh, at, that's a good one. That was one that I'm like, wow, you know, it's like, and again, I, I always felt like like the and there was that that time women in country were still there was they were still churning it out. And now it's coming back. It's it's just a, a slow. There, there's that's one of the things in in the country uh radio realm that that needs to be fixed we we need a little more uh a little parody there but um yeah forester sisters I, I i liked them um and of course highway 101 who didn't like highway 101 that was uh that was a fantastic uh time to be in radio and and playing country bing bing boom I, I would also have to throw in, I liked Mark Chestnut an awful lot and he did have an awful lot of hits. So I'd have to throw Mark Chestnut in there too. Cause he was, he was one of my favorites during that, that time. And of course, everybody loved Garth Brooks. That was a give me. So, I mean, he, he, no, but I said underrated. I know, I know what you did. I, but, but yeah, I'd, I, and even Mark Chestnut, I don't know if I would say he's underrated. He, he was, he had a lot of hits. He did really well. So, you know, that may not, that may not fit the, the test either. Right. Yep. So I'm going to, here's mine and we're going to play a few bars, but let's see if you can recognize this without looking at your screen.
Good piano. All right, can you hear that? That's on it's on my wife's uh, playlist of songs that she wants to do with her band is uh, that one. And uh, what's the uh, what's that uh, other one she did with Dwight Yoakam? I don't know. I'll have to look that up and I'll nah, drop it, it in. Anyway, <laughs> here's so, the other one. Hold on. So it's like Dwight Yoakam. There's another one that was I mean, where did he go? That would Di- be uh, how about Diamond Real? Just saw them. Just saw them. They are phenomenal their harmonies are tight and they still put on a great show they were at iconic fest this year (laughs) as a matter of fact they were our our uh, main uh, artists for the uh, country night at iconic fest and they were phenomenal they had uh vern gosden opened up so it's like you you get these these artists we had uh Johnny Lee there a couple of years ago. That's going way back though. But um, yeah, Diamond Rio, man, they still sound fantastic. They yeah, and they get a crowd going too, just like that. We had Big and Rich. Good That's group. getting a little newer. That's yeah, getting a little, a little newer. newer. But uh, we had them uh, fill in this year uh, at Lakes Jam, which was another festival that uh, they were announced like a week or so before the show like out of the blue type of deal. And they burned the stage down, man. <laughs> it was a great show. Yeah. Well, Bill, we've been talking for, you know, almost an hour here recorded. So um, <laughs> we, we could go on and on down this memory lane forever. But yeah, you know what? We need to do this more often, even if yeah. there's no recording involved. There you go. I like that idea. Uh, maybe we'll have to get uh, Johnny Rock involved. But before Absolutely. we let you go tonight, uh, we're going to, Turn you back more to that familiar seat and roll. So as I said, <laughs> it's time for two questions with Amy. So, or for Amy rather. And so, you know, as we've gone through this conversation or this may be something you've been wondering is since you've known me, you know, since 1990 and, you know, through social media and keeping in touch that way, what questions you got for me? Boy, there's a ton you can only imagine, but I'm going to, I'm going to stick to uh, a couple of things that, I didn't realize at first you were doing stand-up comedy until okay. until my wife brought it to my attention. I'm like, this is some really funny stuff. This is some. Gr- when did you decide? What was the trigger that got you into stand-up comedy of all things from radio? You know, stand-up comedy has always been one of those things in the back of my mind that I wanted to do, but I never thought that I had the material or the things to do something funny. And I mean, it is myself mm-hmm. really provided me some great material and and it, so you've seen my routine and probably yes. evolved then over the last couple of years i like to think that my stand-up comedy is not only funny because it's a clever way to look at the transgender experience from somebody who is transgender but then also it's educational like yeah you know bill not once have we talked about our genitalia and that's because in generally speaking in polite society we don't do that but for some reason, random strangers 
have been up to almost every transgender person I know and have said, Hey, what do you got in your pants? Have you had the surgery? So it's able to educate to say, Hey, that stuff's not appropriate. You know, for, you know, I'm not going to talk about it. And so, you know, it's just stuff like that. So I'm really proud that I'm able to provide that insight and that education and make people laugh at the same time. And, and that to me is really cool because there is, I know a lot of unknown there because unless like, like we're friends and I feel that it's okay to have that conversation. It's not okay to have that conversation with someone you don't know. Yeah. And somebody you don't know, but then also, you know, for a lot of trans people, you know, that's a, that's an area when it comes to surgeries and our bodies where we have to tread very lightly Uh and it makes also dating very different, you know, and you know, I'm in a same gender relationships with another trans woman. And so the way we look at our transitions and the way we look at sex, the way we look at our bodies is totally different, not totally different, but we have some differences in our approaches to these things. Mm -hmm. And so when we're in intimate spaces and we have to have very deliberate, open communication with each other, Hey, is this okay? Or isn't it okay? Because I think in cisgender heterosexual relationships, the assumption, the assumptions are just built in because mm-hmm. that's, they're just there. You know, if I touch this, then I go here, unless I get a, unless they say no or stop. And so those assumptions, especially in trans relationships, no matter or gender diverse, wherever they are, because of body, body, gender dysphoria and, um, yeah. And other issues, body dysmorphia is the word I was trying to find, are a lot more common in our communities. you got to have these very specific conversations from the beginning and continue as you go through your intimate moments. So I think, you know, it's it's been an eye-opening experience and one that I would not trade in a million years. Well, just so you know, that, uh, you know, from a friend sitting on the outside watching you go through your transformation it has been educational i have learned a ton uh from you uh and maybe even a little bit more about myself as far as uh you know i i had no idea or i never gave that a second thought and that's a good thing because those are the kind of uncomfortable conversations that sometimes you know, you even have to have with yourself sometimes. I'm just going to say thank you to that. And I, that makes my little trans heart very warm. Good, good. Second question. I didn't really have a good second question, <laughs> but uh, your first one, you knocked it out of the park. So well, you know, we, be a we, tough follow up back. Uh, it's okay. We have, uh, you know, this great rich history in broadcasting. Ha- would you ever consider getting back into radio if the situation was right? The short answer to that is yes. And the situation would need to be that I could get into a station. I understand that money and business are important, but I would want it to be where there's creativity and there's that community connection there. I wouldn't want to just go to, you know, big name um, publicly traded company for the sake of being on the radio. That, that to me doesn't interest me. And I'm old enough now to know better. I'd, well, if that opportunity ever comes up, 
<laughs> well, I mean, I, I know a program director in Brainerd, Minnesota. So, I mean, you never know what could happen. You, you know? always, you always have that going for you. <laughs> I think I still know one of them up in, um, or a, or a market manager in Bemidji vaguely, but you know, he looked past <laughs> me a couple years ago, so I don't know. Uh, you know, that's, that's his loss. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I love having uh, our, our friendship and uh, being able to do this. This is always a fun thing. And uh, like I said, I've, I've learned a lot through you and with you on your trans and transformation and uh, appreciate you greatly. Well, and I appreciate you uh, maintaining our friendship through social media messages we've shared back and forth. And, you know, at this time, and I'm also going to, because I know you're a good interviewer, I'm going to put you on the short list of fill in hosts. If I ever feel like I want to have a co-host and somebody fill in, you know, absolutely. I would anytime. All right. Well, all right. Well, should we say goodnight there, Bill? I think we're at that point. Yeah, I think yeah. we should. <laughs> I think you should get out there by the lake, say hi to Shelly for me and the family. Crack open one of those three, two beers for me and, you know, <laughs> enjoy the, enjoy the rest of the night. But, uh, we're going to be right back with more transformation Thursday and with Jamie Rodriguez here in well, right after the short break. Good night, Bill. Good night. Welcome back to transformation Thursday. This is Jamie Rodriguez and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm still Amy Stevens. My pronouns are she, her as well. Jamie, uh, let's see, we got another few cases and a topic to cover tonight about, it looks like. Yeah, no, I wanted to, to discuss a, case, a couple of cases uh, going back, actually back about 10 years. Um, you know, this topic is really, you know, gender confirming treatments for trans people who are, um, who are in prisons, who are inmates. And, um, you know, I think it's interesting. I, I look back on this, you know, there's an old saying by Fyodor Dostoevsky that um, a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but how it treats its criminals. And we're, we're not succeeding very well at that one, are we? No, no, you know, but I think, you know, there are a lot of cases where you have trans prisoners you know, bringing some suit for treatment and, you know, and I think how we treat those and how the courts recognize the validity of, you know, gender dysphoria um, uh, and, and various treatments is important. And it's kind of reflects, it establishes kind of a baseline essentially of, of, of healthcare, which I think is actually, you know, kind of in the laws is, um, useful in other areas where you can say, look, the courts have recognized that these are important um, uh, to anyone who ha who has who's transgender. So let me let me jump into there's a there's a basic um, requirement under the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. States can't deny effective treatment for serious medical conditions of prisoners and. You know, it's essentially once the state decides to imprison someone, the state's then responsible for their health care. And, and that principle, you know, goes at least as far back as 1976 with a Supreme Court case called Estelle v. Gamble. And, and that's not the case we're going to talk about today. But, um, you know, that established the principle that states have to have to take care of prisoners' medical needs. And so in... 2011, there's a case, this is the first one I want to talk about, um, 
called Fields versus Smith. And this is a sec uh, Seventh Circuit case um, uh, out of Wisconsin. And to kind of cut to the chase there, what, the, what Fields held um, was, it, was that it was unconstitutional. So the, the genesis of the Fields suit is that uh, Wisconsin had passed a statute which prohibited providing transgender health care to, to inmates. Exactly. Yeah, the Wisconsin statute essentially it it said basically it's any prisons in Wisconsin were not permitted to provide uh, HRT, SRS, sex reassignment surgery uh, to trans uh, inmates, um, and it was kind of a blanket prohibition under the Wisconsin law. You know, notwithstanding the responsibility of of, of the state to take care of inmates' health care. In, in fields, the Seventh Circuit looked at that statute, you know, ultimately held that that was unconstitutional to, to just have a blanket prohibition like that. And I think one of the interesting way, things is how they went about it. You know, they kind of went back and they went back in their own, in, in the Seventh Circuit uh, case law, you know, 24 years before that um, to a case called Meriwether v. Faulkner. And this is a different Meriwether than we've, <laughs> we've talked about in other cases. Um, thank, thank God. That was, that, yeah, I don't like that other Meriwether. 24-year case. Um, the Seventh Circuit had said that you couldn't deny someone um, uh, hormone treatment. Uh, for their gender dysphoria in, in prison. So, you know, they had this historical basis for saying, look, we've recognized um, for, for at least 24 years that, the, that um, things like estrogen therapy is, is important. And, and then other case law in the Seventh Circuit had recognized the importance of treating gender dysphoria. So there was a long history in the Seventh Circuit of, of, of recognizing that importance. And another argument that states had also often made, and I'll come back to a, kind of another comment in a second. Let's put a pin in that. Um, How did I know we were going to put a pin in that? <laughs> we often do, right? We have to, I have to put a pin in something. Uh, so, um, no you know what? One of the arguments that gets made by, you know, people who were defending the policy of not providing trans healthcare is that oh, it's too expensive. The the state, yeah, we have this um, we have this right under the U.S. Constitution to take care of prisoners, you know, necessary medical needs, but that doesn't mean we have to do every kind of treatment that a that a um, prisoner might um, conceive of, and these these treatments for you know gender dysphoria are just too expensive, you know, and you know there there were you know cases that kind of bought into that reasoning, and the Seventh Circuit here really debunked that kind of as a factual matter. They went they went back. They said, well, what are those costs? You know, and they looked at HRT is maybe, you know, three hundred to a thousand dollars per year under, you know, that was the numbers that that the Seventh Circuit was using in 2011. Um, and they looked at like other common drugs that that uh, prisoners are, are prescribed. Um, they looked at one year in 2004, the Department of Corrections in Wisconsin had paid like, you know, $2,300 for a couple of inmates to have HRT. And in that same year, they had paid two and a half million dollars to give various um, 
uh, inmates antipsychotic drugs um, that were costing at least $2,500 per inmate per year. So if they looked at um, some similar um, of, you know, kinds of treatments, the costs were comparable. Then they looked at surgeries and uh, you know, the cost for SRS that they, the, that they used was about $20,000 um, for the state to provide that. And then, you know, they said, well, look, um, uh, the corrections have, has been paying, you know, roughly $37,000 for coronary bypass surgery and $33,000 for kidney transplants, you know, for prisoners. And so they really kind of just debunked the uh, cost argument, you know, one, well when, you put, well, when you put them in those contexts, yeah, those costs don't seem very high and out of line with other things. You know, as we were talking about before we started recording this, is that, you know, our, our transphobe, not so, we're not, they're not our friends, so I'm not going to call them friends, but, but, you know, the transphobes are going to say, well, you know, the heart bypass, the kidney surgeries, those are all medical necessary. And if we look at, you know, in 2020, when hospitals stopped doing elective surgeries, gender confirmation surgeries went out the window with other quote unquote elective surgeons. So I think, you know, I think that's, you know, fast forward to now, I think that's going to be an argument we might hear if we saw some cases like this continue to work their way through. And they are, so maybe we'll see that come up. But then the other side of this too, as we go back to this cost thing, you know, you you know, especially with HRT, but that was one of the big things that Trump cited with the trans military ban was the cost of surgery and medication. But, you know, I mean, you could go to your military doctor or go through TRICARE and end up with a prescription for, you know, erectile dysfunction so that way you can go home and take care of activity in the bed, but you can't go, but you couldn't get HRT, which is definitely less per pill than that little blue Viagra pill, you know, everybody wants to pop. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, thank you for pulling that pin that we had just, uh, you know, a couple of minutes ago, um, um, put in, in, in the, in the, in the case for a moment. And you're totally right. That's exactly what um, Trump was arguing. He was talking of making these unfounded claims about the cost of trans healthcare, which are just not borne out by, you know, the, the, the millions of dollars that. Uh, the DOD spends on other things. And, and, you know, back to your point about, well, these aren't really medically necessary. As a matter of law, they are. And that's what the court was holding was the court was recognizing that these are medically necessary, you know, and, and then they were just kind of debunking the, um, the cost argument. Um, and I think it's even more persuasive when you consider the trans population in prison is, no larger than the general trans population, um, or not significantly larger. I don't know the exact percentages, you know, but it's not like in prison we have, you know, 10% of, of, of the inmates are transgender. No, it's like, you know, it's, it's still kind of down in the half a percent to 1%, you know, range, uh, like the general population. And so you, you, you have relatively, you know, comparable costs for trans treatment with other common uh, medical procedures, but it's, it's it's also a relatively small number of those uh, procedures. You're not going to have that. Th these are not going to set the budget for the Department of Corrections medical treatment because it's no. 
a small number of people. And that was kind of the same point in the in the uh, military cases, you know, the, the case of the Department of Defense. They spend, you know, I don't know the actual number, but it's got to be 20 times as much on um, uh, erectile dysfunction than they do on any kind of hormone treatment, right? Um, and uh, so, so that was the, in the Fields case, that was the Field cases holding back in 2011. Now, unfortunately, in uh, 2019, there was, there was a case that, uh, another Seventh Circuit case, Com Campbell v. Kala, the state of the law in the Seventh Circuit is really set out in Campbell. And what Campbell held was that, you know, while HRT is, I'll just kind of cut to the chase. Essentially, Campbell holds that HRT is a requirement. That's kind of like the minimum treatment. But they they held that um, SRS, there's not an, a straight, uh, a clear right to SRS um, in the Seventh Circuit. And there could be, there's no prohibition on prisons providing SRS, but unless you can establish that it's medically, you know, necessary, and 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 they're going to let those arguments play out in individual cases, inmates in the Seventh Seventh Circuit might not be able to get our SRS paid for the way it is now. But what I want, I want to point out one thing in, in, the, in Campbell. There was a dissent by um, Chief Judge Wood dissenting. It was a you know, three-judge three panel. And here's what Judge Wood said in his dissent. As the district court recognized, when viewed in the light most favorable to Campbell, the evidence shows that despite being treated with hormones, Campbell's gender dysphoria has not improved. She has continued to threaten self-castration and to experience suicidal ideation. The defendants are aware of Candle, Campbell's continued suffering and have nevertheless refused her further treatment. Campbell's experts have opined that no reasonable medical professional would recommend any course of treatment in her, in her case except surgery. The majority opinion swipes this evidence away. Instead, it chooses to reach its own conclusion that despite members of the medical community swearing to the contrary, SRS is not so well established that Callis could be deliberately indifferent by refusing to provide it. But that is a conclusion of fact that lies outside our competence. It also rests on the flawed legal basis of an injury by injury determination of clearly established law. I respectfully dissent. You know, over between 2011 and 2019, you you kind of had the Seventh Circuit saying, uh, is essentially establishing a presumption that SRS was required, and then kind of rolling that back in 2019 and saying, well, yes, we have to treat gender dysphoria somehow, but they're not they're not going to mandate SRS as a matter of law. I want to compare that to a, a case in the Ninth Circuit, Edmo B. Corazon. And there, the Ninth Circuit held, let me just read this, this, this segment. We apply the dictates of the Eighth Amendment today in an area of increased social awareness, transgender health care. We are not the first to speak on this subject, nor will we be the last. Our court and others have been considering Eighth Amendment claims bought by transgender prisoners for decades. During that time, the medical community's understanding of what treatments are safe and medically necessary to treat gender dysphoria has changed 
as more information becomes available, research is, research is undertaken and experience is gained. The Eighth Amendment inquiry takes account of that developing understanding. We hold that whereas here, the record shows that the medically necessary treatment for a prisoner's gender dysphoria is gender confirmation surgery, and responsible prison officials deny such treatment with full awareness of the prisoner's suffering, those officials violate the Eighth Amendment's prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. So you really have the split between the, the Ninth and the Seventh Circuits with, um, in the Ninth Circuit, trans prisoners having a right to um, gender-confirming surgeries, uh, you know, as long as they have a medical diagnosis that it's necessary. And, you know, it's hard to imagine a, a doctor saying that it, it wasn't necessary for, for a um, prisoner who's, you know, at least gone through uh, you know, a period of, of you know, mental health care and, and, and maybe, you know, HRT for a year, as long as someone's gone through those and their condition still warrants um, gender-confirming surgeries in, in the Ninth Circuit, they're going to have a right to it. Well, with this, now with the split then in the circuits, we're, what, what, what does this line up? Yeah, you know, so that's interesting. So actually in Edmo, there was a, a petition excuse me, petition for certiorari um, um, submitted to the Supreme Court and it was denied. So the Supreme Court has declined to take this issue up. And, you know, when the, when the Supreme Court denies a cert petition, it doesn't actually have to give any reasons. You know, sometimes uh, they will, uh, a justice will make a statement. Usually what happens when they deny cert is the, the justices making the denial almost never make a statement about why they just, you know, they just deny it. And then you might have one or two justices who disagree and want to take the case. And, and essentially, uh, you know, sometimes those justices will file a comment. But in the majority of cases, cert gets denied and you're, you're left with the underlying opinion. So uh, we, we do have a bit of a split. There's clearly a split between the Ninth and the Seventh Circuit. You know, the Ninth Circuit comprised of kind of all the Western states, you know, including Alaska and Hawaii. And there's like 61 million people in those states. So it's, you know, roughly almost a fifth or a sixth of the U.S. population uh, is living under the Ninth Circuit, whereas the Seventh Circuit is, you know, Wisconsin and Illinois. And I don't, I'm not sure the population of those states, it's smaller, um, but you do have this, um, this kind of disagreement at law. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how this goes, you know, going forward. I do, I do think there's, it, it's funny, you know, you, you've often talked about the DSM and, uh, you know, the kind of the, what, what how the DSM four versus five and, and, and the like um, defines uh, gender dysphoria. And the I, I think- I look at that book right now. Yeah. Are, are you sitting on a DSM right now? You look a little taller. <laughs> no, um, the, uh, it, you know, in, in the, in the Fields case in 2011, they were looking at DSM-4 and then uh, Ed Moby Corson, they were looking at DSM-5 and that's not really the important point I'm making here, but I, I think what is important is that the courts are recognizing what's in the DSM as, you know, as really 
good evidence of, of what's medically necessary. Um, and as that changes over the years, the courts are going to adopt those changes. Well, and for a lay person, you're going to look at, the, at those two and you're going to say, well, there's not that much difference between them, but there, but there are some key differences because actually DSM-4 treats gender identity disorder, GID, as what it was referred to in the past as, you know, a mental health issue or mental health, you know, something that was more along the lines of a depression, anxiety, something else. DSM-5 actually took and kind of, not kind of, it gave gender, they renamed it from gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. It gave it its own classification outside of, you know, the anxiety, the depression. So it's really, it's not lumped in with those other mental health diagnoses anymore. So it's a, it's a, it's an interesting change that mm -hmm. is, and that the APA, the American Psychological Association, is out in front on. And I, there's actually some kicking around that I've heard that, you know, you know, they might gender dysphoria might actually come out of the DSM at some point because, you know, we, you and I have bantered about this then, you know, it does, if, DS, if, if a future DSM does not include gender dysphoria, then does that unlock the the ability for you know a person to get insurance coverage for all these things? I still think there's a medical diagnosis to be made there, because but I don't know if it's necessarily something in mental health because if we look at the brain science behind this stuff, you know it's it's really everybody has a different brain structure. I mean there's similarities, but they're different. And so and if we look at gender and the parts of the brain that control gender our brains, even before we started hormones, looked more female. And so, you know, and a transmasculine person is going to be lean more masculine. And then if you have somebody non-binary, they're going to be in the middle. And, and, it, and, you know, we can go back to, you know, Carrie Prey in our episode with her, and we can talk about, you know, those differences in gender being on a spectrum and not, you know, two set points at any place. So... Yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting things. And this is where the law and mental health definitely overlap with each other. And I, you know, and so I think these are things that are still going to have to work its way through the courts. And I think, you know, if, you know, if we get outcomes that are favorable to trans folks in the courts, that sets the precedence for our society and the way we treat people. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. And I, it is an interesting note about like, you often hear, hear people, um, you know, expressing concern with how it's kind of the medicalization of being transgender, if you will. And, you know, if, if you removed that, moved it gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria um, completely from the DSM, there's a question of what certain um, courts would do in in how they would assess whether it's medical and medically necessary treatment. So I think that's something just to keep in the back of our minds as we have those debates. Yep, but that's that's a debate for a future time. So and and once again, it's a Sunday night. It's late and it's time to go to bed, Jamie. Yes, it is. Well, thank you so much for letting me join you and uh, you know. Let's do doing another little segment. I think we might have gone a little over our 10 minute time limit here, but we'll, I'll we try were, it. Well, it was more than a little over. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, righty, Jamie, we better say good night to everybody. Good night. Good night, everyone.